the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this Monday installment, a momentous weekend with the untimely passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We'll uh, have historical perspective on SCOTUS vacancies in an election year, review of the favorites, uh, AOC's call for radicalization, Nancy Pelosi's feint of being a Cheshire cat and Clinton Foundation Donor Zero's program on Sunday. Uh, but first, uh, what does the president aim to do about the vacancy? He made that clear in North Carolina over the weekend at a rally. In both the 2016 and the 2018 elections, the American people chose a president and a Senate majority united in their commitment to selecting nominees who believe in applying the Constitution as written, right? Both the White House and the Senate majority have a moral duty to fulfill the promises they made to the voters. And that is exactly what we're going to do. We said that if for any reason we have a vacancy on the United States Supreme Court. We will fill that vacancy. We're not going to say, and by the way, we have plenty of time. There's a lot of time. You know, you're talking about, you're talking about January 20th, right? Well, that's it. Well, that's it. So we will uphold equal justice under the law for citizens of every race, color, religion, and creed. I will be putting forth a nominee next week. It will be a woman. And before we get to who that nominee may be, uh, Ted Cruz offered a little bit of a historical context. I always appreciate historical context. So people who are ignorant of the history know that, you know, we've been here before. And uh, perhaps before we acted better than we might in the present, perhaps we might act better in the present. We'll see. I think the um, latter is less likely these days. Uh, But uh, Ted Cruz, on the history of such an occurrence, a Supreme Court vacancy in an election year. If you look at history, if you actually look at what the precedent is, this has happened 29 times, 29 times. There has been a vacancy in a presidential election year. Now, presidents have made nominations all 29 times. That's what presidents do. If there's a vacancy, they make a nomination. What has the Senate done? And there's a big difference in the Senate with whether the Senate is of the same party of the president or a different party of the president. When the Senate has been of the same party of the president, a vacancy occurs in an election year, of the 29 times, those are 19 of them. Of those 19, the Senate has confirmed those nominees 17 times. So if the parties are the same, the Senate confirms the nominee. When the parties are different, that's happened 10 times. Merrick Garland was one of them. Of those 10, the Senate has confirmed the nominees only twice. And, and there's a reason for that. It's not just simply your party, my party. 
the reason is it's, it's a question of checks and balances. In order for a Supreme Court nomination to go forward, you have to have the president and the Senate. In this instance, the American people voted. They elected Donald Trump. A big part of the reason they elected Donald Trump is because of the Scalia vacancy and they wanted principled constitutionalist on the court. And a big part of the reason why we have a Republican majority elected in 2014, re-elected in 2016, grown even larger in 2018, a major issue in each of those elections is the American people voted and said, we want constitutionalist judges. Uh, this thought experiment, if uh, we were living under a President Hillary Clinton, she had won in 2016. If uh, over the course of the last three cycles, Senate Democrats were able to retake the majority and Chuck Schumer was the Senate majority leader. And uh, flip the script. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is still alive and Antonin Scalia passes away less than two months before the 2020 election. What do you think Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer would have done with the positions they hold in this hypothetical president and Senate majority leader. What do you think they would have done? Would you be hearing the same arguments from the left? And what were those leftists in your circles of influence who are decrying the idea that President Trump should do the same thing President Obama did four years ago and advance a nominee and that Mitch McConnell is going to take advantage of his majority to move that nominee to a floor vote. What do you think they would be saying under my hypothetical? Do you have any question that they would move their nominee, Clinton and Schumer, with leftists cheering to try to extend or, in their case, mitigate the narrow conservative majority on the court? Let me give you a hint as to what the answer is. What you hear now is, uh, and what you're seeing now, is a new round of op-eds at all the left-wing outlets talking about packing the court, which has been something they've advocated uh, since the beginning of the Trump era and after the confirmations of Alito and particularly Kavanaugh, haven't they? I mean, Gorsuch and then particularly Kavanaugh, excuse me. Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh. Pack the courts now. So, right, this is a party that's all about Senate norms and constitutional responsibilities, which actually the constitutional responsibilities is not even germane. The constitutional responsibilities are being abided by the president and by McConnell. And this is the same party that wants to eliminate the Electoral College and pack the court. (laughs) They're all about norms. They're so uh, moved by precedent, aren't they? Meanwhile, you have AOC, their de facto intellectual leader, telling us this moment should radicalize us. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 6436DA, turnkey.pro text line. There, uh, earlier, last hour, we had somebody suggest that uh, Barbara Lagoa, 52-year-old federal appellate court judge from Florida, Cuban-American, uh, may uh, be Trump's selection, and she seems to be one of the two finalists, the sort of inside-the-beltway handle on it. And then, of course, Amy Coney Barrett uh, from Notre Dame, who's now a Seventh Circuit appellate court judge, is uh, the other. Coney Barrett probably seen as the front-runner. 
Coney Barrett's 48 years old. Barbara Lagoa is 52 years old. So, uh, God willing, either one of them nominated to the high court, confirmed to the high court, they'll serve there for decades to come. How will that go? Well, we got a little bit of insight into how it may go for Amy Coney Barrett because she believes that uh, the our purpose on this earth is to uh, build the kingdom of God. And uh, it was statements like that that were featured in her appellate court confirmation hearing where she had this now rather infamous exchange with Senator DiFi from California, remember? When you read your speeches... Um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for for years in this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Large numbers of people have fought for religious liberty in this country, too, DiFi, unbeknownst to you. But I... You're not going to be able to go after Amy Coney Barrett or or Barbara Lagoa, obviously, the way that you did Brett Kavanaugh. But they're going to find a way. And with Amy Coney Barrett, it's going to be Christianity. It's going to be the fact that she is a committed Christian that is disqualifying. This is uh, being talked about a little, but it should be raised here. And it it may ultimately. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I don't want to preordain. Uh, what President Trump may do, other than to suggest that Amy Coney Barrett, I think, is the pick he should make. But Christianity is, I mean, she's a mother of seven, five biological, two adoptees from Haiti. She and her husband, her husband's a former federal prosecutor. She graduated number one in her class at Notre Dame Law School. I mean, she uh, clerked for federal, uh, respected federal uh, uh Appellate Court Judge Silverman before she clerked for Scalia and then went on to work in private practice, Notre Dame Law School, and uh, now, of course, sitting on the Seventh Circuit. It's going to be tough to go after her in terms of qualification. It's going to, I, I doubt we're going to have any sexual harassment accusations manufactured against Coney Barrett or, or Lagoa or the other women that are uh, being mentioned. When we come back, I want to talk more about uh, the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the choice before President Trump, how this ties into attacks on Christianity. And, uh, you know, if it came down to it, the selection that I would make in terms of taking up the fight that needs to be taken up, that needs to be taken up. Uh, More on uh, this topic right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, the uh, nomination to replace her coming this week per President Trump's edict on the topic over the weekend and uh, reiterated on Fox and Friends this morning. 
And uh, if it's Amy Coney Barrett in particular, uh, you know that the attack on her is going to be thinly, a thinly veiled attack on Christianity. That's where they're going to go. She is uh, some sort of a Christian theocrat who will put her faith before the rule of law. Be prepared for this. This is where it's going to come. And to me, if I was President Trump and I was choosing between two very qualified women, and I know much less about Lagoa than I do Coney Barrett, I'd almost pick Coney Barrett just to have this fight, just to not just to, but in addition to, you know, in addition to the fact that both these women are qualified, they would be great jurists, they already are great jurists, and, and so on and so forth. The additional benefit, pick this fight. Let America see what Christian bigots the left, the, the, the leftists truly are. Let them see it. So that informs their vote on November 3rd as well. Uh, Jim Caviezel... Uh, the actor, he's got a new movie out called Insidious about Christian persecution in uh, Christians being persecuted in the Middle East. Talk about your underreported global story. Uh, and, uh, you know, Caviezel was uh, in the Mel Gibson mo- movie where he played Christ. Uh, and uh, he is a committed Christian, committed Christian in Hollywood. This exchange he had with uh, Martha McCallum on Fox News, he came on to talk about his movie. And um, and this Caviezel's talking about uh, Christians in the face of sort of uh, unfair treatment by the government under the auspices of covid spread prevention. But it applies to what may come starting this week if President Trump does select Amy Coney Barrett and uh, what the response should be. We have this thing called cancel culture, and if Christians don't watch it, it will be canceling Christianity as well. Because a lot of our pastors, okay, our bishops, our priests, they're laying right over. They, they let their churches being burned, all right? How do we know that? Well, it's right there in the news. Statues being ripped down. They don't say anything. And I watched a movie that Mel Gibson did, Braveheart, when you have the English who's the bad guys against the Scots. But the real bad guys were the guys that were collaborating. All right. That's why we're in this situation right now. We can't go to churches. We can't go into our church. Well, why? Because they could get contaminated. Right. So then why are we on airplanes? I have friends that have committed suicide. I have seven. I have seven uh, seal buddies that have lost seven of their friends of committing suicide. And would it have helped to been able to get into a church, especially during this time? Absolutely. And is it good for mental illness? Yes, it is. And so um, uh, the collaborators in our faith, all right, this is where the persecution starts. You've got to have guys inside your faith that won't stand up to the governors, that will not stand up to the mayors. And that's why the Gospels are very much alive right now. Okay, so there are many of us. I got to play Jesus. Some of us love Peter or Paul. But there are many of us right now that are, are flat-out Judases, okay? Or they're Pontius Pilots. Or they're, they're the Pharisees, okay? And it's a bloody shame if you can't tell the difference between a, a priest, a, a bishop, or a politician. It's really sad. But this is called lukewarmness. And Christ has a very special place for them and they know it it's uh, very sad if you can't tell the difference between a priest a bishop and a politician there's a statement and uh, we may have another 
challenge for uh, all three categories to the extent they're distinct categories anymore. Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed for her post to the Seventh Circuit, 55-43. Barbara Lagoa, by contrast, no religious controversy there. 80-15 confirmation to the Eleventh Circuit. So the path of least resistance for President Trump may be to go with Lagoa, but should he take it? Or should he uh, nominate Amy Coney Barrett and face this bigotry straight away? In addition to advancing all of the other attendant matters for Supreme Court nominee. I understand the idea that, um, you know, maybe she motivates the Cuban-American population in Florida that much more. I don't know if it's possible to motivate them more. I think they're pretty motivated population. Um, So, yes, it would be another uh, development uh, for their community to be proud of. But um, I don't know. I just think the, the fight that Amy Coney Barrett would engender is more important. It's interesting because um, what was Trump's impromptu reaction uh, after he got off a plane? I think it was uh, uh, from uh, his rally in Minnesota on Friday night when he was told by the press of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Guy who can't handle anything well won't be respectful. Wow. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. She led an amazing life. What else can you say? She was an amazing woman. Whether you agreed or not, she was an amazing woman who led an amazing life. Um, I'm actually sad to hear that. I am sad to hear that. I don't know why Tiny Dancer is playing in the background, but it was, and it was not uh, part of uh, President Trump's uh, doing. But uh, amazing woman who led an amazing life, uh, hearing about that is, uh, is sad. I think it's pretty respectful. It turns out... Uh, more respectful than she was to him, right? She ultimately had to apologize for a comments that she made not becoming a sitting Supreme Court justice about the president. You recall that, Philip in Blue Island? Selective memory. There's a nice tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't agree with it on, on some of the substance, uh, but, but a nice tribute to Bader Ginsburg in the Wall Street Journal from Ken Starr. There's a tribute from Jonathan Turley, uh, there were many who uh, commented on, and I, I retweeted, commented on um, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg's probably uh, reunited in heaven with Scalia right now, and they're talking about opera or some such thing because, you know, this unusual friendship that she had with Scalia. It's fine. It's great. So, there's yeah, there's no dancing on anybody's grave here. There's a bit of a review of the record in the context of all this, you know, lioness for gender equality and so on and so forth. I mean, I that doesn't square with the record as far as um, my interpretation, but okay, disagree on that. And then it's the conversation that the left is foisting upon us because they know it's the responsibility of the president and the Senate to address, which is the replacement. I'm sorry that everything has to be politicized immediately such that you can't provide any breathing room for mourning or consideration of somebody who passed, who was so impactful, but that's the nature of our culture today and whose responsibility is that for politicizing everything
Show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Great legal minds are weighing in on the Ruth Bader Ginsburg vacancy. One Rob Reiner tweeting out over the weekend, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body isn't even in cold and Mitch McConnell is dancing on her grave. This is war. Dems have powerful weapons. Now is the time to use them. Okay, what are those powerful weapons, Meathead? Uh, another uh, political tactician slash uh, expert in con- constitutional jurisprudence, that would be Nancy Pelosi. She was on with Stephanopoulos on this week, essentially trying to um, develop what Rob Reiner is fainting, that there is something that House Democrats, maybe in conjunction with Senate Democrats, can do to derail a nomination and a confirmation hearing. Some have mentioned the possibility, if they try to push through a nominee in a lame duck session, that, that you and the, the House could move to impeach. President President Trump or Attorney General Barr as a way of stalling and preventing the Senate from acting on this nomination? Well, we have our options. We have arrows in our quiver that I'm not about to discuss right now. Uh, but the fact is, we have a big challenge in our country. This president has threatened to not even accept the results of the election uh, with statements that he and his henchmen have made. But to be clear, you're not taking any arrows out of your quiver. You're not ruling anything out. Good morning, Sunday morning. The, uh, the, the, we have a responsibility. Hilarious. We take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. We have a responsibility to meet the needs of the American people. Uh, that uh, is uh, when we weigh the equities of uh, protecting our democracy requires us to use every arrow in our quiver. Okay, enough with the Robin Hood metaphors for for a minute. Um, what exactly are they referencing? I mean, uh, you you can go full Gary Oldman and impeach everybody if you want in the House, uh, Barr, President Trump, Mnuchin, whoever else. How do you stop the president from nominating a uh, replacement for the post? And how do you stop Senate Majority Leader McConnell from calling the question? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Ilya Shapiro. He's the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review and author of the well-timed new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. You might need to add a chapter, slip opinion, if you will, (laughs) Ilya. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, you'll have to buy the second edition, but uh, my publisher had to pay extra for this timing, I think. Yeah, right. You you better get writing here soon, get your uh, legal pad out. So um, any uh, insight into what a noted legal scholar Meathead or Nancy Pelosi have to say about these weapons that they won't discuss in detail that they have at their disposal? The only thing they're alluding to is impeachment, uh, as you mentioned. And the reason this is important is because if Senate receives a bill of impeachment from the House, they have to drop everything they're doing to take it up. But the thing is, they can just have a vote and dismiss it immediately. They don't need to take weeks and weeks to process it or anything like that. If House tries that kind of stunt, I don't think it would be a major obstacle for whatever Mitch McConnell has in mind. Right. And uh, with respect to Senate norms on Supreme Court nominees, you know, here we are again uh, pretending that one side is playing politics and the other side isn't, that one side is interested in political power and the other side isn't, that one side cares about political norms, particularly when it comes to Democrats. Good piece in the journal over the weekend reminding us all about 
the assault on nominee Robert Bork, reminding us about the nuclear option being exercised by Harry Reid over appellate court nominees. So, I mean, the whole Senate norms argument that uh, is trying to be advanced, these so-called Biden rules versus McConnell rules, these are just guys in the moment exercising the authority they have based on the numbers that they oversee. Right. Historically, it's just been purely about political power plays. So there have been 29 times where vacancy has arisen during a presidential election year. Each one of those 29 times, the president has made a nomination. Then when it comes to the Senate, it really depends on whether the Senate is controlled by the same party as the White House. If we have a united government, then almost every time there's been a confirmation. If we have divided government, then almost every time there has not been a confirmation. That's just historic, what, what the historical record shows. It doesn't mean Mitch McConnell has to go ahead or whether the vote needs to be before or after the election, but it's all political calculus. This is not about some uh, constitutional order or anything like that. And so with respect to moving a nominee, um, there's nothing that would impede Mitch McConnell from taking up the nomination as soon as President Trump offers it ostensibly this week, as he said. That's right. It's all about whether Connell has the votes. And he's lost two, apparently. Collins and Murkowski have already said they're not going to vote for, to confirm, uh, at least before the election, if not the, the inauguration. Uh, that means there's only a margin of one more because it's a 53-47 Senate right now. Right. When we come back with Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute, I want to ta- stay on the uh, topic of Supreme Court uh, nominee, uh, of course. And Talk about uh, those arrows Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats pretend to have in their quiver. More with Ilya Shapiro right up. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Cato Institute's Ilya Shapiro. And before the break, we're talking about uh, President Trump's forthcoming nominee to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the high court. And uh, I wanted to uh, uh, provide a little bit of a historical perspective here. Ted Cruz brought this up on Stephanopoulos' show, too, this week. Actually, uh, Jimmy Carter, lame duck appointment to the federal bench of Stephen Breyer, who went on to be Bill Clinton's second Supreme Court nominee and ultimately Supreme Court justice. But that actually occurred after Carter lost the 1980 election and after Senate Democrats lost control of the Senate in 1980. Nonetheless, Carter and Senate Democrats went ahead with that appointment. And I know that's not a Supreme Court appointment, but Cruz's point, I think, is a salient one. I mean, talk about the ultimate in rejecting the fact that the American public had just rejected you and your party. Right. And as I describe in my book, Supreme Disorder, that's not the only time that there have been lame duck confirmations, including to the Supreme Court. There have been nine lame duck confirmations to the Supreme Court, including by non- of nominees nominated by a president who had just lost re-election. Most notably, John Marshall, the great chief justice, was nominated by John Adams after he lost his re-election bid to Thomas Jefferson. I mean, that happened 200 years ago, of course. But again, this is all about politics and political calculus and game theory about if the Republicans in the Senate do this, will Democrats, if they win the election, pack the court? That's the sort of thing. But it's, it's not about... Uh, 
uh, you know, anything other than that kind of political calculation. Well, and, and by the way, isn't that the point? Isn't that the point of our co-equal branches of government? Isn't that the point of having elections and saying, I want uh, this party in charge of the Senate. I want this party in charge of the House. Uh, things would be different if Democrats were in charge of the Senate, if they had wrestled control of the Senate over the last three cycles. They hadn't, have not. And in fact, uh, Senate Republicans expanded their majority in 2018. And so that's the people saying that I, I want divided government. Uh, I want when it comes to nominations, uh, I want President Trump to be in the White House and I want Republicans in control of the Senate. And so they should exercise the power that was conferred to them by the people. Well, that's the major difference between 2020 and 2016. In 2016, uh, President Obama had just gotten reelected in 2012 and then the, the Republicans won the Senate in 2014. So kind of a split decision from the voters. Here in, uh, in 2016, Trump won, and in 2018, the Republicans expanded their majority in the Senate. So that's, that's a political distinction, certainly, that, that Mitch McConnell is raising. And ultimately, it's, it'll be for the voters to, to decide uh, whether that's uh, what they want. Uh, do you have uh, any perspective on some of the names that have been shortlisted, at least perception-wise? Uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the 7th Circuit, Barbara Lagoa on the 11th Circuit seem to be the, the top two names being circulated and discussed, but there are a few others, including Allison Jones Rushing, who's on the uh, the Fourth Circuit. She's very young, 38 years old. But the other two judges are also relatively young by Supreme Court standards, Barrett, 48, and, and Lagoa, 52. Yeah, Rushing, I think, is, is too young. They'll probably hold her for a future possible vacancy. But Barrett and, and Lagoa, I think, are very, we have a very short, very quick uh, short list here. Barrett has a bit of a longer record in the sense that she was a Notre Dame law professor, has now been on the Seventh Circuit, appointed by President Trump for two and a half years, and has written opinions there. Lagoa was on the uh, board of State uh, Intermediate Appellate Court for 12 years, and I have not read her opinions there. I'm sure the White House and Justice Department are pouring over those. And then she was uh, less than a year on the Florida Supreme Court, now less than a year on the 11th Circuit, appealing political move, potentially. She's from Florida, Cuban-American, important you know, constituency and, and state and, and all that. You know, we'll have to learn more about her if she, if she becomes the eventual nominee. But, but those do seem to be the, uh, the top two. And President Trump has said it will be a woman. And the uh, now infamous interchange between Dianne Feinstein and Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation hearing to the Seventh Circuit, in which Feinstein said of Coney Barrett's Catholic faith that the dogma lives loudly within you. That was not a compliment. Seems to me yeah, that, that, that sounds like a rejected line from Star Wars or, or something. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. If I don't know if attacking the Catholic faith is going to be a winner for uh, for Democrats uh, if, if Barrett is the nominee. So that's also part of the political calculus. Well, it seems to be right. It seems to me that, you know, uh, obviously Roe v. Wade will be front and center as it always is, at least since 1973, with respect to these nominations. And that's the way they'll get at Coney Barrett's uh, Christianity is through uh, Roe v. Wade and saying, well, she's just dogmatic and she's some sort of Christian theocrat rather than a, a measured jurist. Um, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, uh, that's the political calculus. You know, I'm a constitutional lawyer, not a political operative, but right. the idea is uh, which nominee might drive out your base better, which nominee might convince swing voters better. Um, you know, that, that's all being discussed in the White House. Uh, with respect to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's jurisprudence, uh, it seems to me there's... Um, there's, you know, this is often the case. There's um, a confusion between being consequential and being a heroine or a hero, as the case may be. 
the idea that you can be impactful, but that impact is very much in controversy as opposed to somebody who's just su- supposed to be celebrated as a as a, a trailblazer. And so I wonder uh, how you review uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's time on the high court in terms of being uh, consequential versus being uh, someone who advanced uh, you know, the foundational principles of the nation as enshrined in the Constitution. Well, she's been called by many people, including her old buddy, Antonin Scalia, the, the Thurgood Marshall of the women's legal movement in terms of uh, going against employment discrimination, sex discrimination of, of, of different kinds, women's legal equality. Uh, and that was even before she got on the court, before she became a judge. Uh, once she was on the Supreme Court, uh, she didn't have that many opportunities to write landmark majority opinions. The most famous is probably Virginia versus United States requiring uh, the Virginia military, BMI, right. BMI to, to admit uh, female cadets. Uh, but uh, more of her renowned uh, opinions, and this is probably why she's become a progressive heroine and the, uh, the notorious RBG, as she was called, is for her uh, dissents in cases involving voting rights and employment discrimination and, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, Bush v. Gore. Bush, absolutely. Uh, little Sisters this past term, uh, a, a lot of cases uh, where and she was when she announced her dissents from the bench, she would wear a special... Uh, what are called uh, jabot, which is some people call it a neck doily, a, a piece of jewelry or or accoutrement ar- around the neck, and sort of that became part of her mystique. He is Ilya Shapiro. He's the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and author of the forthcoming book, September twenty second. So that's like tomorrow. It's out. Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. You want to pick that up, Ilya Shapiro. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show and uh, looking for another sport you can enjoy, more or less politics-free. You know, while I'm partial to the sweet science, as A.J. Liebling termed it, uh, that would be boxing. Uh, MMA, quite popular, UFC, a lot of uh, acronyms there, mixed martial arts, right, UFC. Uh, Colby Covington is a big star in the UFC, and he won a big fight over the weekend, and... um, Perhaps in addition to the PGA and boxing, I think, for the most part, if you want to enjoy a great professional athletic contest, this is where people who don't want to be lectured to by the woke mob might be able to go to enjoy sport at the level in which you have come become accustomed to enjoy it. Listen to Colby Covington after uh, his victory, his first pre-vite uh, excuse me, his first post-fight interview, what he had to say about uh, the coming whooping of another sort. The silent majority is ready to make some noise. If you thought that was a beating, wait till November 3rd when Donald Trump gets his hands on Sleepy Joe. That's going to be a landslide. 
Hey, and Kobe. I want to, I want to, Don, I want to dedicate this fight to all the first responders, all the military out there. You know, this world would not be safe without you guys. You know, you keep us safe. And, uh, you know, not these woke athletes, man. I'm sick of these woke athletes and these spineless cowards like LeBron James. Oh, spineless cowards like LeBron James. That guy is, uh, you know, back in my day, WWF quality trash talking there. I like it. And then he went on from there to actually trash talk uh, some guy, he, uh, some other guy he wants to fight. I don't follow UFC as closely as boxing. But anyway, how about that? Later on, a subsequent post-fight interview with ESPN, he gets a call that he takes live on the air. This is fun. You are a great fighter, man. I'll tell you, you make it so easy. I don't know how to have you do that. <laughs> Congratulations. I wanted to watch that fight tonight. I wanted to watch it. You were great. Thank you so much, Mr. President. You gave me the dragon energy when you shook my hand on Sunday at your rally, and it doesn't matter if King Kong was in front of me, I was not going to lose after getting to shake your hand and be uh, you rally. Gonna lose. <laughs> well, he's a strong-looking guy, too. He's a tough guy. He's a great fighter. He was a champ, and you, that was easy work, relatively easy work for you. That's a great, I'm proud of you, man. Thank you so I'm much, I'm proud Mr. of you. President. I just made a big speech. I had 35,000 people. I said, I want, i got to get home now to watch Kobe. <laughs> watch Kobe. That was... That there you go. So now you know what Trump does in between rallies. I mean, he was in uh, Minnesota, North Carolina uh, over the weekend and um, took time out to call Kobe Covington. May have caught him being interviewed and saying, wait till the you see what the pounding that's going to come November 3rd. And that motivated Trump. Maybe uh, marry the two uh, PGA and UFC, because I'll tell you what, uh, <laughs> Bryson DeChambeau, uh, the the uh, performance he had at Wingfoot winning the U.S. Open, but also, I mean, it's just a 6'2", 240. I don't know. That could be a good fight between him and Colby Covington. This is the answer. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Let's talk a little bit of COVID culture. Two local stories that have national implications, I think. They're not dissimilar to stories I've heard from other states that are run by lockdown and bust politicians, both at the mayoral level as well as the state level. A 37-year-old Democrat activist named Reed McCullum lives in the Tony area of Chicago that people know as Hinsdale, is taking pictures of children playing in the park Posting them on Facebook and asking for followers to shame the children and their parents for not wearing masks while playing outside. He lives right next to a park in Hinsdale. Give you an example. Dietz Park right now. This is almost every day. If you know their parents, shame them. Hinsdale Parks every afternoon. Great work, comma, reckless parents. This, by the way, I'm sure he considers himself a man of science and data like all these politicians. I believe the World Health Organization advisory on masks. Oh, I don't believe it. I, I'll quote it. People should not wear masks when exercising as masks may reduce the ability to breathe comfortably. Sweat can make the mask become wet more quickly, which makes it difficult to breathe. 
In addition, the World Health Organization has said children under the age of 12 should not wear masks as a default. I know that varies from industry to industry and city and state to city and state, but nonetheless, this is the COVID snitch lives of others culture. This commentary from one brave football coach in Illinois, John Holasek, writing the Chicago Tribune over the weekend. Put us in, Governor Pritzker, bring back high school football. Right, the only state in the Midwest that's not playing high school football and that's not playing fall sports. Despite the Big Ten reversal, no such reversal from lockdown and bust politician Jelly Belly Pritzker. The coach here, John Holasek, state championship winning coach for Loyola Academy and Wilmette, another Tony area of Chicagoland. And Holasek himself, standout athlete from Marian Catholic to the University of Illinois to the Buffalo Bills, where he was an all-pro linebacker, knows a little bit about what he speaks. And he makes a really salient point here which I don't think has been given enough emphasis because Pritzker and all these politicians say the same thing. I'm not willing to say, I'm quoting Pritzker, I'm not willing to sacrifice people's lives or their health, neither the children nor their parents who would be affected also. And he went on to say, if other states want to do that, that's up to them. You know, even states run by his fellow travelers like Whitmer in Michigan and Evers in Wisconsin. Holasek makes the underappreciated point, hey, guess what? Coaches and parents care about the kids too. Did you ever think of that? You think you've cornered the market on being concerned about young people's health? You you think you've cornered the market about people being concerned about their own health? You know better than do the adults as to concerns about their health vis-a-vis their kids and vis-a-vis their kids playing football or other fall sports. A democracy needs leaders who are brave and can stand tall in moments of uncertainty, writes Holasek. The time now is to reverse course and regain what our children have lost in development and trust. Please give them, the kids, a chance to play, he writes. You could say the same thing about giving kids a chance to learn properly at the K-12 through level as well, which is the topic of uh, Bethany Mandel's latest piece in New York Post, a topic she's written about previously. Bethany Mandel is the editor at Ricochet.com, contributor to the Post, co-host of the Ricochet.com podcast, That Sethany Show. And she joins us now. Bethany, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get to um, your piece in uh, distance learning, which we already know a little bit about based on the research that was done about distance learning in the spring that so many people have seemed to have forgotten, the uh, examples that I just uh, went through here locally in Chicagoland, particularly, but not exclusively, taking pictures of young kids and then posting them online and saying, go get them incredibly disturbing. And it feels like if you were to transport our society six months ago and you were to say on the radio that there were men standing outside parks taking pictures of children, this would understandably raise some serious red flags about their behavior and their ethics and safety of the children at the park. But now we've sort of fast forwarded into COVID times and all of these things that we used to know implicitly were dangerous for children are we're now just sort of subjecting them to and, and creepy men taking pictures of them at the park is one of them and sticking them on a computer for six hours is another. And not letting them play sports is another. We're all doing this yes. in the interest of their safety. We're, we're outing them online right. saying, go get them. We're not letting them play sports, engage in athletics. And we're saying, sit in front of a screen for six hours, as you just said. This is yep. all because we care so much about kids. Yep. And it's funny because the folks who are saying, you know, we have the best interests of children at heart are the schools who are putting them in front of the screens. But they've sort of taken the responsibility out of parents' hands to know what's best for their children. And parents are sitting at home and they're thinking to themselves, my child is in the most low-risk population. They have a higher chance of dying from the flu. I mean, that's, that's not COVID denialism. That's just fact. They have a much higher chance of dying from the flu. We never shut down school districts for more than a day or two because of the flu. And so parents 
parents are seeing their kids suffering from depression and suffering from the isolation. And we're being told, well, we know better because God forbid you could catch a disease that would result in basically diarrhea and a fever for a day. And uh, the decision in New York specifically, since you're there, they were going to go back to uh, some sort of in-person learning and it got delayed and it got delayed again. Is this just the, the slow walking of not going back to in-person learning? Yeah, no, it absolutely is. It's funny. The teachers are put together a flyer protest about their a protest that they're doing in person, by the way, about not going back to work. And all of the graphics are straight out of a communist handbook. And we are sort of seeing a window into what they want to be doing. And it's not <laughs> working. It's remarkable. As I said, a couple of things. One, what we know from Brown University research from the, the vaunted Washington University IHME research on distance learning in the spring it was bad. It didn't work. Yeah. Uh, children learned, you know, a fraction of what they normally learn in a semester. And yet that's all forgotten. That's all irrelevant. Number one. Number two, uh, the fact that two dozen Western European nations have gone back to school or in the case of Sweden, they never stopped going to school. And without major incident, that is also not relevant to the conversation. Yeah. And especially for me personally, I had my kids in an indoor, in-person, without mass summer camp all summer at our, our local like Gymboree, basically. And they were there all day, every day for two months. And they were fine. <laughs> there was not an outbreak. Everyone was fine. If anything else, it was actually the healthiest my kids had been because they were more than usual emphasizing hand washing and temperature checks. And there was not a sniffle. <laughs> In two months. Yeah, but right. I mean, and this, of course, is the experience across the country. I mean, there's such disparity yeah. between the COVID lockdown states and the free states, I guess I would call them. Uh, and that, that, that those comparisons also state to state. Uh, Georgia, Brian Kemp was uh, engaged in human experimentation when he began to reopen Georgia. Now nobody mm-hmm. talks about Georgia, or at least the press won't cover Georgia yep. because it's not a catastrophe. They won't cover Florida because yep. it's not a catastrophe. Yeah, I mean, they, they had a small spike, but they had a fraction of the deaths in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. We saw the deaths that we saw in those places because they introduced the virus to the most vulnerable population. And, and you saw what happened. But the deaths in Arizona and Florida, all of these states who opened up, did not remotely rival that of New York and New Jersey or Connecticut. And now we, we sort of stopped talking about it. And what's frustrating is, I think, on the board of COVID deaths, we should also put on the board the change and disparity in suicides and in, in ODs. Yeah. If, if we want to talk about the death rate, the sort of unintended consequences of COVID, that is there. And the number of people that I know who have committed suicide in my social circle since all of this started is astronomical. Well, it would be interesting. There was a uh, model that was produced a couple of months ago that projected 75,000 so-called deaths of despair, excess deaths of despair because of the lockdowns. And it would be interesting to track that model and also look at the demographics of those deaths compared to the demographics of COVID, too, just to understand the trade-offs, because for half the country, it seems, or a loud minority of the country, they want to live in a world of trade-offs, which does not exist. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't really understand it because this world of sort of liberal concern has always been concerned about mental health and about stability of our museums and our, in our cultural institutions and art museums, all of these things. And all of these places are going belly up first because what do you do when you don't have extra money? You cut your annual contributions to the symphony orchestra and who normally 
normally goes to the symphony orchestra, people over 70 who are not going to be going to an in-person large gathering for a while, yet I don't hear any real concern. Yeah, people over 70 and me, uh, those are the, the demographics. The irony, too, of the, this week, uh, the U.K. announcing a move towards a renewed lockdown at the same time as they took Sweden off their quarantine list in terms of travel. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw a tweet from a guy uh, in the UK and he said, you know, I've been following the rules for the last six months. Everyone I know has, but let me tell you, there's no gas left in the tank. Hmm. Well, here's some good news. We have now have a soundtrack for this time in our lives so we can recall that through through song. Thanks to Van Morrison, who is uh, releasing <laughs> releasing three anti-lockdown songs. Born to be free, As I Walked Out, No More Lockdown, the first to be uh, released this week. I won't sing for you because I can't sing, but it, but at least Van Morrison <laughs> is going to memorialize this uh, time in our lives for us. Yeah, yeah, and I, hopefully he won't be called a grammar killer like I was. But yeah, right. Bethany Mandel, <laughs> editor at Ricochet.com, contributor to the New York Post, co-host of the Ricochet.com podcast, That Sethany Show. Bethany Mandel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, we're certainly going to talk to our next guest about some of the what we were talking about with Bethany Mandel from the New York Post, and that is about uh, COVID's impact on families and community. But we've got to frame this properly, the possibility of a stunning upset in South Central L.A. in a congressional race. Maxine Waters is the incumbent. No justice, no peace, Maxine. You remember her going back to uh, the riots in South Central following the the Rodney King uh, police-involved beating and the O.J. verdict. And uh, Maxine Waters marching in the streets, no justice, no peace. And she hasn't stopped. Fast forwarding to the Trump administration. Remember, she is one of the individuals who's openly advocating before it became all current Black Lives Matter, Antifa, other anarchists to harass people who are Trump supporters, who are Trump administration officials at restaurants and other public spaces. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them. Yeah, and that's the way to have a more civil discourse in our politics like the left pretends to want, right? Challenging her is a gentleman we've spoken to before. He is Joe Collins, Republican candidate for Congress, Navy veteran, and um, putting together quite quite the robust challenge to an incumbent who you would think is ensconced as long as she wants to be. Maybe not. Maybe not. Joe Collins joins us now. Joe, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you? Good. Well, one of the you know ways you test to see if a campaign is, is real, has a real shot, is can it put together the resources to message, to really mount an uh, information campaign to the voters to get something to do what they haven't done in a long time. And um, just looking at the FEC filings, I see, do I have that correct, that you've raised more than $3 million, uh, more than $3 million put behind your campaign against Maxine Waters in South Central L.A. to, to date? Yeah, we're, we're about $4.1 million now. Wow, that's outstanding. What Explain the uh, genesis of that sort of support and what you would think would be a race. You know, a Republican, even a black Republican, can't win in South Central L.A. 
Yeah, I think that one thing that no one betted on was the fact that I'm from South Central Los Angeles, you know, Republican or not. But the success we've had is from the community and from people across the United States who have donated to our campaign because they want to get rid of Maxine Waters just as much as we don't want her there. And a lot of people in South Central Los Angeles just don't like Maxine Waters. She's a liar. At the end of the day, the only thing she has is the Impeach 45 uh, little slogan she came up with. Well, and this is uh, not dissimilar to Kim Klasick in Baltimore and how she rose to such a stardom with the video she put together just walking through Baltimore, basically making the same case. So, hey, you know, don't believe Kim. Don't believe Joe. Just look around. You've had the same people representing you for two decades or more. And how's it going? If it's not going well, maybe it's time to make a change. Yep, exactly. And I and you know what? I hope Kim does a good job out there in Baltimore, too, because Baltimore is really it's a asset. The majority of that city is trash. And it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of abandoned buildings. It's a lot of poverty, just like, you know, in South Central Los Angeles. And and I still have some people who say, why do you want to challenge Auntie Maxine? And it's like, because we have so much homelessness. We have so much trash. We don't have jobs. We have the poorest education in the entire United States. Like, what do you mean? Why am I challenging Maxine Waters? Yeah. And uh, also, uh, you're challenging Black Lives Matter, too. You're really uh, taking on all comers here. Um, you're not uh, <laughs> just just falling in line with the uh, Black Lives Matter narrative. Yeah. You know what? I, what I don't like is the, the violent protests. We saw what they did in, in Washington. We see what they're doing in Portland and Chicago and New York. And we absolutely don't need that in, in South L.A. I mean, after Maxine Waters enticed those riots after the Rodney King beating, they destroyed our city and they didn't even rebuild our city. And so we saw that coming. And so uh, myself and a few other guys in the community, man, we chased these people out of there. Well, when you uh, look at, uh, you know, getting tagged as a, I'm sure you're getting tagged as some sort of Trump Republican, some sort of extremist and so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so how, how do you respond to that in, in a policy way to say, look, I'm 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 not Donald Trump. I'm Joe Collins. And here's why I'm running. And, and how are people reacting, you know, as they try to tag you with Trump? The only person who's ever tried to put me on Trump is uh, Maxine Waters. She says I'm a Trump puppet. I mean, which is which is fine. It doesn't bother me, but I want people to understand Trump is his own man, just like I am my own man. And I support the president of the United States. But um, I'm a Joe Collins Republican. I'm not I'm not the Donald Trump Republican. He has his agenda and he stands on his own two feet. And I have my agenda when it comes to rebuilding the, uh, the United States and rebuilding my community. And by all means, I'm going to use Trump policies and, and things that he's put in place to rebuild my community. So it, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, you can't, it's a, I look at the person, I'm like, look, you're, you're, you're poor. We live in poverty. And, and the only thing that you can say is, you know, I'm a, I'm a Donald Trump puppet. Right. So, I mean, I'm going to take what I like, like maybe uh, Opportunity Zones uh, advanced by Tim Scott, and I'm going to discard what I don't like, whatever those policies are. But but I'm, you know, it's running it, running it very local in the sense of these policies make sense for our district, our community. These policies may not. And this is, you know, the policies that do is where I'm going to focus my attention and my, my effort as a member of Congress. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then the majority of the time, people don't even know what's going on. They watch MSNBC and the CNN and they think they're getting the right information. And the majority of the time it's false. So how do you close the show? What's the what's the message coming down the stretch in a, in a obviously a volatile environment that just got more volatile with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? One thing that I can say is we're kicking Maxine Waters' butt out here in South Central Los Angeles. And I appreciate everybody who has 
came on board, donated, supported our campaign to help bless, you know, RBG. So, but I am looking forward to another conservative and a judiciary because the constitutional rights is something that we can absolutely use to fight for. We don't need any mob rules. We don't need any more liberals sitting on the bench. We need people who are going to protect the Constitution and protect the people of the United States. I was out in California last week, including in the uh, L.A. area, the week before last, including in the L.A. area. And that is uh, that is a hard lockdown state, boy. And I wonder uh, how you think some of the draconian lockdown policies, COVID lockdown policies of, of Governor Newsom are impacting the uh, district that you're seeking to represent. The way it's impacting is people can't go to work and we already live in an impoverished, poor district. And so when you add the lockdown, only thing you do is create more anxiety, create more anger. That's towards the Democrats, not towards Republicans, because we haven't had any Republicans running our um, city in a very long time. But it helps us out because we're able to get resources to the community. I mean, we do our food drives, our back to school drives to get our kids ready for school. And then we also have companies that are still hiring during COVID-19. So we've had a lot of um, a lot of, uh, you know, job fairs and everything, too. So, I mean, everything that the that the Democrats do it in, in our community, we, we kind of counter it to make things better for the people in our community. And, and what about in terms of kids education? We were just talking about it with Bethany Mandel in New York and generally. But I know the L.A. teachers unions have won the day to keep kids out of school. And we know from mm-hmm. the research that's a bad situation for kids learning. Yeah, unfortunately, we're going to have a lot of kids that are uh, behind whenever school does open back up, but they've absolutely politicized opening back up schools. I mean, the first it's only supposed to be two weeks, then it turned into six months, and now we can't go back to school until November, which, you know, it's, it's kind of obvious what it is that they're doing. But man, as, as far as the school goes, man, it's hurting a lot of kids out here. The distant learning, I mean, like kids need that social that social interaction on a regular basis. And so, you know, as soon as, as, soon as we get this recall, Gavin Newsom effort um, rocking and rolling, then the better, the sooner we can get him out of office so we can go back to a normal life. He is Joe Collins. Uh, I'm looking at his uh, campaign website. 90,000 people have joined his campaign. Now you know why after listening to him. Joe Collins for Congress.com, taking on Maxine Waters and trying to uh, plant a flag for conservative Republicans in uh, the black community in South Central L.A., diverse community, diverse district, actually, not just the black, but Latino and white as well. Uh, Joe Collins, a Navy veteran. Joe Collins for Congress.com. Joe Collins, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with the race, man. All right, thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Following on our conversation with uh, Joe Collins, running for Congress against Maxine Waters in South Central Los Angeles and taking on the Black Lives Matter narrative as well. If only C-suite executives at corporations and uh, parents and administrators and teachers at public schools were as courageous as Joe Collins. Uh, Critical race theory and the 1619 Project. Talked a lot about it last week on the occasion of President Trump establishing that 1776 commission on the occasion of Bob Woodson and company, uh, Ian Rowe, uh, uh, offering their first uh, uh, history curriculum as part of the 1776 Unites response, really, in part to 17, er, in response to 1619. 1619, despite all of its backing, it's uh, 
intellectual founder, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize winner. Of course, the project is backed by the Pulitzer Foundation. Uh, it still seems a bit muddled as to what 1619 means. Uh, this uh, uh, tweeting that was captured over the weekend by a film, Agnes, who uh, uh, has good piece in Quillette on the topic uh, of critical race theory. Um, she uh, states initially that uh, 1619, as the uh, real founding of the nation, she wasn't meaning literally. She says, I, even though she previously said I literally, um, I was making a rhetorical argument. Instead of saying, what if we contemplate 1619 as our birth? I say 1619 is our birth. Much the way I say black people are true founding fathers. People who work in good faith understand the use of rhetoric and essay writing. Oh, <laughs> yes, people who work in good faith. Sure, like the 1619 Project. Uh-huh. Um, then she says, so I'll own up to not being precise in my Twitter language. And then she says, I think no one in good faith can claim they think I believe the actual founding date of the United States of America was, is when 30 Angloans... Uh, uh, 30 Angolans, I should say, Angolans, 30 Ang- Angolans were sold to the Virginia company. People understand the argument being made. We state it. Now, now actually, you don't precisely. And with the corresponding rewriting of history, along with the 1619 Project and its curriculum, as we uh, see playing out in public schools near you, including near me in Chicago, I think it's difficult to take Nicole Hannah-Jones in good faith, so I'm not going to. Uh, For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Max Eden. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he writes recently about critical race theory in American classrooms. Max, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, A colleague of yours, a contributor to City Journal, uh, Chris Rufo, has been uh, all over this as well, including unearthing um, a a, a critical race theory seminar at uh, CDC in contravention to a Trump executive order on the topic. Uh, everywhere you turn, this stuff is popping up. Uh, and, and so the implications of it beyond what uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is saying regarding the nation's founding. No, I mean, the implications are, are profound, right? I mean, and I think most of the argument that we've been seeing in, in public about 1619, it's getting closer to the point, but it's still not quite hitting the core of it, right? When Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, was speaking to kind of her comfortable audience, right, kind of white liberal professor types. She said explicitly that the goal of the 1619 Project is reparations, right? And then when asked why that was her goal, she said that was her goal because it seemed, and this is pretty much a verbatim quote, seemed more realistic than, like, can we get white Americans to stop being white, close mm-hmm. quote, mm-hmm. right? Now, curriculum can't affect skin color. Um, what she's talking about here is critical race theory, right? Is promoting this ideology that takes things that, you know, you and I, most Americans come to think of as virtues, things like delayed gratification, hard work, even things like the nuclear family and having stable households. Uh, bad things too, but takes all these things that we think of as virtues, labels them whiteness, uh, and then tries to tell our, the next generation that's going to be your job to deconstruct whiteness. So it goes deeper than just, you know, factual questions about the country's founding. It goes to this core ideology that is fundamentally about taking, you know, the things that make our civilization 
calling them whiteness or white supremacy and trying to encourage the next generation to agitate against things that will make them successful in life. Uh, you say we, we don't have we haven't quite hit upon it um, in terms of the reaction to 1619 Project. It also seems to me uh, for a long time, uh, those who had some concerns about what was happening were underestimating the uh, impact this would have. And, and frankly, the objective of those having impact from Nicole Hannah-Jones to Ibram Kendi to Robin D'Angelo and many others. I want to uh, pick it up there when we return with Max Eden who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We'll be back with you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Max Eden. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And we're talking about critical race theory in America's classrooms, as if uh, the education of your children is not suffering enough at the K through 12 level in the era of COVID. Uh, Max, I, I left off. I wanted to you, you're talking about you. We've sort of been dancing around the, the real key un, uh, to understanding critical race theory and its lethality. I also think we've understand, underestimated the scope from the beginning. A lot of people thought this was just going to be about uh, some pseudo-intellectuals like Robin D'Angelo creating a cottage industry for themselves and their colleagues to generate uh, endless corporate consulting fees for doing these race awareness, uh, whiteness is bad uh, seminars. But it is bigger than that, especially when you start folding in uh, trained Marxist activists who talk about, as you mentioned before the break, the uh, breaking up of the nuclear family and really the reordering of America under a new racial order. I mean, that, now we're talking about political power, not just lying in a few people's pockets. Yeah, I think what people probably fail to appreciate, right, and it, it was progress when, thanks to, our, to my colleague Chris Rufo's reporting, the Trump administration canceled federal training in critical race theory. I don't think people quite realize, though, that this is might be a little hyperbole, but I don't think much. Almost all of their kids' teachers have already had critical race theory training. This is what schools of education primarily do. In large part, teachers kind of absorb it passively. They don't necessarily carry it on to the classroom. In the past, if things got political in the classroom, maybe a parent would complain. So there's always that check against it. But something has really changed in our country in the past few months uh, since Minneapolis and George Floyd, where, you know, this rhetoric that silences violence, it tells teachers, you know, you will now get in social trouble for not putting this stuff forward. And uh, I think... You know, you're right. What parents need to understand, or saying the kids in public school, it is it is about a fundamental kind of moral reordering of society, right? This D'Angelo, Ibram Kendi stuff. They say explicitly there is no such thing as being not racist. There is being anti-racist, and there is being racist. And we are anti-racist, uh, and America, <laughs> or whatever we don't like, is racist, right? So you imagine you're a kid, you hear this message. Uh, and you hear your public school teachers say that the nuclear family is part of a racist structure or that, you know, kind of living in the suburbs is part of a legacy of systemic racism. He comes home at the end of the day and he has been told, if not directly, at least implicitly by what he's been learning in school, uh, that his home environment, his family is in some way racist and that everything that these people don't like 
uh, is racist and in America for good reason. You know, that's the, that is the ultimate epithet. Anything that is racist should be anathema. But what is being done by these activists that I fear is filtering very quickly through public schools is basically, you know, whatever we say is evil, is evil, and you must agree or else you are evil. And that's, you know, that's not really a promising way to inculcate civic virtue in the next generation, especially when these people hold that America uh, is at its core a racist nation and needs to be overturned. I wonder how important you think the uh, Princeton uh, uh, Title VI case is. Uh, Princeton University President Chris Eisgruber uh saying that, you know, Princeton has a history of systemic racism and so on and so forth. So, okay, oh, they have a history of uh, systemic racism. Great. Thanks for the uh, admission of guilt. Now enter the United States Education Department, which wants to know exactly how you're racist, because if you are, that's a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, provided that no one on the basis of race should be excluded from participation in, denied benefits, subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So now colleges, you want to run and run around a virtue signal. We're going to hold you to account under Title VI. That piece of jujitsu, does that have the potential to bring some, some, just some sense to college campuses? Uh, You know, it's a starting point. I think it signals that if President Trump gets a second term, that he will start to put the power of the executive behind trying to fight critical race theory. Right. I mean, just imagine, can you imagine that for one second, if there was a public elementary school in America teaching that we must confront and dismantle blackness in all of its forms, that the Obama Department of Education would have stood for it? You know, absolutely not. So I think if we see a second term of the Trump administration, we can expect to see, judging by this case, them to start to take a much more active stance against any form of teaching that says students are defined morally by their race, which is very much what critical race theory does. Unfortunately, the flip side of that is that if there's another Biden administration, by that same token, you can expect them to use that same power to advance this stuff, right? You can expect them to say that any given disparity or any given complaint is evidence of systemic racism, and the way to fix it is to develop kind of equity-driven departments or hire equity consultants and inject more of this stuff into the higher ed system and the K-12 system. And I think that, you know, your question partly was in the higher ed side. I, I fear that's a lost cause. You can't really turn that tide. The main question is, you know, is the K-12 system going to become like the higher ed system in the next four to eight years? And that will appear largely hinge on who is elected in November. Uh, Shelby Steele, I think, also distills something that we that a lot of people have sort of been sort of dancing around, but haven't quite got to it. And of course, Shelby Steele distills it uh, because there's few better uh, intellects than him around on these matters. Uh, He uh, says in a trailer for his uh, new documentary that's forthcoming this month, What Killed Michael Brown? He and his son, Eli, look into what happened in Ferguson. He said he he, uh, says America's original sin is not slavery. It's simply the use of race as a means to power. Isn't that really uh, what we need to get to, this idea that race is going to be the means for political power, that it, you're replacing one racial order with another, or at least those who desire to uh, identitarian political orthodoxy are intent to do? And it ends badly, uh, regardless of who the race in power is and who the race not in power is. It's going to end just as badly as it did previously under Jim Crow or under slavery. 
Yeah, and I think it's something that's hard to get people to understand because of this language of racism and anti-racism. But what Ibram Kendi, you know, the architect of this notion of anti-racism, what he says is that discrimination against whites is anti-racist. This is a full-throated defense of Jim Crow-esque legal discrimination based on people, based on the color of their skin. It's just changing the race and adding the word anti in front of it. We have been taught in school, contrary to kind of the claims, about the horrors of Jim Crow and about how toxic that was for our country. And unfortunately, the group that is, you know, has a lot of heft over what we're teaching our kids is trying to reinstill a different form of that with different legal structures and a different racial hierarchy. It is it's immensely troublesome. He is Max Eden, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Check out his piece uh, at uh, City Journal, Critical Race Theory in American Classrooms. Max, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And um, Donald Trump at the rally of the faithful in Minnesota uh, had uh, this little vignette to share about uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is wholly owned and controlled by the left-wing mob. He has no clue where he is. This is not a sharp guy. <laughs> Years ago, I said to a certain senator who I was very friendly with, a Democrat, who's the dumbest senator? Who's the smartest ever? He gave me a name for the smartest. I said, who's the dumbest? Oh, Joe Biden. You didn't know that? That was 25 years ago. That was in prime time. This is no longer prime time for Sleepy Joe. It's funny. I've heard, actually heard that story before from a member of Congress, a uh, member of Congress uh, talking about, like, who's the best golfer, who's the dumb, smartest, who's the dumbest. And uh, this is also about that long ago. And the answer was uh, uh, this uh, senator from Delaware named Joe Biden Kind of interesting. Maybe uh, Trump and I have the same sources. Anyway, uh, Joe Biden offering his response to the move to uh, fill the Ruth Bader Ginsburg vacancy, speaking from Constitution Center in Philly on Sunday. Joe Biden started out with a whole riff on, you know, all that's wrong with America that will be fixed if Donald Trump is defeated. And so he went on this covid riff before he got to the gist of the matter about the Supreme Court vacancy. And perhaps most cruelly of all, if Donald Trump has his way, the complications from COVID-19, which are well beyond what they should be. It's estimated that 200 million people have died, probably by the time I finish this talk. 200 million people have died from COVID by the time he finished his talk on Sunday? No, I don't think so. 200,000? Hmm. It's interesting he doesn't catch himself when he makes such obvious errors, uh, something that he wants to emphasize, a big, shocking number, 200 million he doesn't hear in his own voice. I mean, 200,000. He's done that before with gun deaths, too. You remember? Uh, Biden uh, offering uh, this in 2016 about filling a Supreme Court vacancy. You'll recall the Scalia vacancy. I made it absolutely clear that I would go forward with the confirmation progress process as chairman, even a few months before presidential election. And uh, the RNC doing a nice job of cobbling together all of the pronouncements from all of the leading lights of the left in 2016 
on the same matter. The American people deserve a fully staffed court of nine. The president nominates and then the Senate advises and consents or not, but they go forward with the process. What we're seeing here, and I hope this is temporary, is a disrespect for the Constitution. The Constitution is 100 percent clear. The president of the United States has the right to nominate someone to be a justice of the Supreme Court. Senate's function is to hold hearings and to vote. The blockade on filling a naturally occurring vacancy, in my view, is harmful to the independence of the Article Three branch. Uh, and so on and so forth. You get the gist of it. The, the, the clear, implicit uh, uh, rider in the Constitution was, unless a real estate magnate slash reality TV show star is the President of the United States, then all bets are off. This is Dan Brown. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com at the website, at Dan Proft Show, and at Dan Proft on social media. And uh, before uh, we tee up our next guest, just a little bit of a preview. You want to stay tuned uh, after uh, this segment. We're going to be joined by Chadwick Moore to talk a little bit about uh, the cringeworthy Emmys as well as the Black Lives Matters agitation and protestation around the country over the weekend. And then after that, uh, NRCC Chairman Representative Tom Emmer from Minnesota joins us. Talk a little bit about the prospects for taking over the House. Republicans regaining control of the House, in addition to whether or not uh, Trump rallying in Minnesota on Friday, Minnesota's actually in play and could actually go Republican for the first time since I was born uh, this November. Uh, so, uh, Representative Emery, you want to stay tuned for that. Now, uh, turning our attention to uh, the Supreme Court vacancy again, uh, we're pleased to be joined by Quinn Hillier, who is a commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks for having me on, Dan. I know you always haven't been the biggest fan of uh, Trump's communication style, but um, with respect to from first hearing about uh, Ginsburg's passing from the press on Friday evening to uh, what he's had to say over the weekend in terms of you know making the case that it makes sense to do his job and fill the vacancy and let the Senate do what the Senate's going to do the same way President Obama did in 2016. Uh, he seems pretty cogent, pretty room temperature, pretty matter of fact, I think pretty sensible, don't you? He does, although he makes it sound like we have the Senate, so therefore it's a power play. We can do what we want. He doesn't get into what the important thing is, we, meaning conservatives or Republicans. That's his we. It's not just that they happen to have it. It's that the Senate got elected. The Republicans got a Senate majority in large part because of their stance on judges. Mm -hmm. So it's not just some power play happenstance. It is that is what the people of those states that elected these senators wanted, is they wanted conservative justices. And so this is the voice of the American people working through the constitutional Senate process. And that is a much stronger argument than even the one that he's making, because 
it confers an added legitimacy to what he wants to do. Well, and doesn't it also it'd be nice if you go attack the premise of this? Oh, this is you know just power politics. Excuse me, you know governance is an expression of power. Governance is wielding power in one direction or the other, on one issue or the other. And so, yes, this is an expression of political power, political power conferred by the consent of the governed. What is complicated about this? The very key thing is the last full word that you said, consent of the governed. Yes, right. This isn't political power seized by some military coup or by some strongman. This is political power conferred by the voters. It is therefore entirely 100% legitimate. You uh, append a piece over the weekend. Can we take time to honor Justice Ginsburg before we go politically bananas? And the answer was a resounding no. Well, if you look even more closely at what I was saying, I was making two arguments that, that have the same practical effect. Number one, decency should say that at least for a couple of days, you just focus on this remarkable American, whether you agree with her or not, and I did not agree with her on much of anything. But she had a remarkable career. She was a dedicated public servant. Uh, she was a wonderful lady in person. You know, let's let's let her family mourn and let's, you know, honor her service. So that's the first thing is just human decency. And, of mm-hmm. course, that went out the window immediately. But, but the second thing, if you look, I was saying – These Republican senators who are jumping the gun saying, oh, we will not confirm anybody for whatever dumb reason they give, you know, because it's too close to the election or something. No, they need to step back. Everybody needs to step back, hear from constituents, let the arguments step in. This rush to judgment in the immediate aftermath of somebody's death is both unseemly and it's also politically and constitutionally wrong. This is the Senate is supposed to be a deliberative body. So how about some deliberation for once? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you across the board, but but I, I must say the uh, the report by NPR. This is NPR reporting it, so people don't believe this is what uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. That's fine. Take it up with NPR. That uh, according to a statement dictated to her granddaughter, Clara Spira, days before her death, she said, quote, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed, unquote. And if that was accurate reporting by NPR, I I just think about you talk about dignity and uh, the bigger things. And uh, what a sad way to go out to offer such a small perspective. That's your most fervent wish after uh, living such a life and, and holding such an important post to go out with your most fervent wish being about uh, a trifling matter of electoral politics? Look, we don't, apparently that was a couple of days before she died. We weren't there. We don't know the circumstances. You don't know what goes through somebody's mind on their deathbed. I'm not going to judge that. Uh, I, uh, She was a remarkable figure who was truly friends with the conservative justices, especially Anthony Scalia. and Scalia. But right. she had she had the grace to stand up against the left and stand up with integrity uh, on two very important matters. One, after the left lied about, smeared, brutalized Brett Kavanaugh, he was on the court for only about a month, and she said very good things about him, said, said this is a very good, fine, decent man. That's a fair okay? point. Yeah. That helped. And number two, she uh, 
absolutely spoke out strongly against the left's idea of court packing by adding more justices to the nine on the Supreme Court that have been there for 130 or 40 years, whatever the, the exact number is. Uh, so, you know what? What she says on her deathbed to her granddaughter, I'm not going to judge that, but it's not a Make-A-Wish Foundation. Just because that's her wish it doesn't mean we have to abide by it. No, no, I understand. I just... I don't know. I mean, it's 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 more sort of a taking that again uh, as given, just sort of more, more of a commentary about everything has to be force fed through this myopic uh, prism of of electoral politics. I mean, you know, even complicated lives of accomplishment reduced. Everything is reductionist to politics, and I just think that's sort of a an indictment of Western civilization. I agree with you on that. Uh, I just don't want to judge her. Yeah, if I, that I hear is you. what she said. I don't want to judge her. But your broader point is absolutely right, which was the same one I was making, except it, it, it goes in all directions. Everybody needs to take a deep breath. It doesn't mean that you don't go forward with the constitutional process. Actually, we've now had more than two days for a deep breath. But let's do it with some dignity. Let's, uh, let's respect each other and... Uh, you know, let's just step back from the precipice of making everything a a uh, basically a political nuclear war. Um, well, back to the political nuclear war. Um, <laughs> <laughs> didn't last very long. How uh, how do you see this uh, confirmation fight, regardless of the nominee, playing out in terms of the electoral implications is this a is this a net benefit to trump who now has the narrative and and joe biden is sort of sidelined or or depending on how this plays out could it uh, flip on trump and the republicans well it could easily flip on trump and the republicans only because you never know what uh dumb aside what uh what completely insensitive aside might come out of Donald Trump's mouth. But as long as he plays it halfway smart, it should help him, should help Republicans. Uh, I have written about this, studied this for 20 years. Well, I mean, I've, I've studied it for a lot longer than it, but I've written about this for 20 years. And it is almost inarguable, uh, Against, I mean, it's almost impossible to argue against the fact that, on the whole, the issue of judges helps conservatives more than it helps liberals. That has been shown in poll after poll after poll. When you when you look into what enthuses the voters of each side the most, what when you say what is your top priority. The Republicans and conservatives always do better on judges for all sorts of reasons I could get into. But for right now, let's just say we know that on that at the margins, it helps Republicans and conservatives. And Trump needs to go ahead. And any senator on the Republican side that doesn't understand this is just oblivious to political reality. He is Quinn Hillier, commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Quinn, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this 
is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I know that uh, most of the attention was on Mitch McConnell's house over the weekend when it came to protesters and other uh, purveyors of agitation. But um, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and associated anarchists uh, have not stopped their destruction and harassment on the streets and in the restaurants of American cities across the nation. Just a, a quick smattering of, of events. When it comes to BLM uh, protests like this, attack all of us. Are you racist? So don't put the phone down because otherwise, so why do you want to record it? Because that recording allows us all to get docked. And you know what docking is? It means they'll find our addresses, they'll trace our social media, they'll find our families, they'll find where we work, and they'll come. And right wing media will make sure we don't protest anymore. So thank you very much for letting us know. That was uh, a delicate little flower shouting through a megaphone, a bullhorn at uh, a gentleman and his female companion sitting outside at a restaurant because he, you know, helped, took out his phone and was filming the chaos. Washington, uh, New York, Portland, of course, all the normal hotspots. Uh, if we don't get it, shut it down. You get the gist of it. And then also similarly harassing uh, people uh, filming with their phones. One of the things they do now, you may have seen in some of the video clips, is they the black umbrellas like they use to cover when they make an advance on police. So you can't see, you know, video can't pick up who's doing what. That's the same thing they do when they surround somebody, a reporter or whoever who's filming. Black umbrellas come up so they can get in that reporter's face and perhaps even worse, as the case may be. Say Black, say lives, matter. Matter. Okay. black lives Matter. It lets us know Malachi. that you're cool. Say Black Lives Matter. You put the fist up, but you gotta say Black Lives Matter. Yeah, say it Black does. Lives Matter, homie. Say Black Lives Matter right now. Black Lives Matter. Say Black Lives Matter, bro. You didn't? I didn't hear bro. Okay, say it. Hold on, let him talk. Let him talk. Let him talk. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So you this truck comes to a barricade and the mob is out there. Say Black Lives Matter and then you can pass. Say it at a restaurant driving. We've played the video or talked about the video before, played the audio of a guy just trying to fill up his gas tank down in Louisiana. Uh, Rochester over the weekend, mass shooting. Two are dead, 14 injured after gunfire erupts at an illegal lockdown party. Black Lives Matter activists wearing justice for Breonna Taylor shirt walks into a louisville bar and kills pe- kills three people shoots three people black male brianna taylor justice for brianna taylor shirt louisville bar owned by a retired police officer shot three people at point blank range no conversation no disagreement there was no conversation just walked in somebody that uh, the owner said they'd never seen before and um, executed three people at, that, at a louisville bar have you gotten much wind of that 
This is what persists. And against this backdrop, what do you have? More identitarian performance art at the Emmys yesterday. Jimmy Kimmel and Anthony Anderson, the actor from Blackish. Listen to this cringeworthy exchange. I'd like to say. You do? Yes, I oh. do. Because in rehearsal, I thought we decided that we're just. You gonna... know, we have a record number of black Emmy nominees this year, which is great. This is the part where the white people start to applaud. Oh. And nod. Oh. What the f? Jimmy. All right, these Emmys would have been all star. You know, these Emmys would have been NBA All Star Weekend and Wakanda all wrapped in one. This was supposed to be the blackest Emmys ever. Y'all wouldn't have been able to handle how black it was going to be. But, but because of COVID, we can't even get in the damn building. Well, thank you, Anthony. Yeah, these Emmys would have been so black, it would have been like hot sauce in your purse black. It, it would have been Howard University homecoming black. It, it would have been you fit the description black. Well, um, I'm sorry that it wasn't that. It would have been great. It really would have. We would have had speeches Mm -hmm. quoting our great poets like Maya Angelou. Yeah. Yeah. As if I could endure more of that. Um, It's a nice minstrel show Jimmy Kimmel participated in. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Chadwick Moore, columnist for Spectator USA. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, pleasure to be here. I know you're in New York, so you have a a firsthand account of what's happening there. And, uh, you know, just on the, the continued uh, appeasement of Black Lives Matter, Antifa and uh, other associated thuggery by heiresses, uh, white heiresses, as well as, uh, uh, you know, black entertainment types, as well as just run of the mill people looking to take advantage of an opportunity to uh, to to enjoy a license for violence. Right. And what, what we what we see here in New York mainly is uh, and this was in the news a couple weeks ago when, when a bunch of. Uh, BLM Antifa rioters were destroying buildings in the financial district, and a bunch of them were, were arrested. They were all wealthy kids with, you know, whose families had second homes in Connecticut and and uh, lived on the Upper West Side, and by all extent were at very extremely privileged lives and really not much to worry about. And uh, here they are uh, destroying the streets and bashing windows in the name of Black Lives, which the majority of Black people never asked them to do, and probably are cringing as hard as anyone else is. Uh, interesting stuff. And then, and, and yeah, it's more than that, that. Oh God, that award show last night. Of course I didn't watch it, but I saw the clips this morning. Um, how cringe, how tiresome, uh, is, is anyone charmed by that? Is anyone, uh, being swayed over to their side by this sort of bullying and this, you know, support, uh, support, uh, pledge your support for our, uh, movement or else you can't drive through or else we won't let you do this. Um, I'm That's sure it. where that actor was, uh, uh, you know, the worst thing, the worst possible outcome of COVID was that their highly black awards show um, couldn't have a live studio audience. OK, great. It, it's just so anodyne, too. I mean, Anthony Anderson, the actor in question, just sort of running through tired stereotypes. I, I thought uh, stereotyping was racist, but I know it's not <laughs> when Anthony Anderson does it. But I mean, it's also just so uncreative. That's the thing I find. Uh, equally distressing about these. There's just no thought going on whatsoever, which is why they're awash in contradiction, uh, not particularly persuasive, as you say. And then ultimately, what do you have to do? You have to resort to making a claim based on race and enforcing it 
with force. Right. And look at, I mean, it goes, it, it's coinciding with the, the absolute death of comedy and, and mainstream entertainment. Uh, race jokes are really funny. Uh, Dave Chappelle does it really, really well. Chris Rock does it really, really well. Lots of people can do that, but you, you get these activist types who think they're comedians uh, trying to do these really tired race jokes that don't come off as funny or uh, a way that we can look at each other, look around, poke fun of ourselves. That's what humor is supposed to be. We're able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at each other. Instead, it comes from this place of anger and supremacy and resentment, and that's not funny or entertaining. Nobody wants to watch that. When we come back with Spectator USA's Chadwick Moore, I want to talk uh, about uh, Juicy Smollett's attempted return to the limelight. What's, uh, what's the ideal comeback role for Smollett? More with Chadwick Moore when we come back. It's been you. Show.com. We're back with Spectator USA's Chadwick Moore. Before the break, we were discussing BLM and their performance art. And speaking of weak performance art, speaking of weak performances, Jussie Smollett, that uh, French actor, or Juicy Smollett, I guess, is the <laughs> Dave Chappelle spin on it. He is trying to get his career back. We're particularly interested in this in Chicago. Uh, you wrote about it. Yes, bless his heart. He's trying to get his career back. And Linda Sarsour, uh, Danny Glover, and Angela Davis, the uh, three communists, uh, uh, have all, among with uh, several other activists, have signed a letter basically saying that Jesse was set up by the police. He was framed. It's actually <laughs> a conspiracy from the Chicago Police Department to take down this C-list actor on Empire that, frankly, not many people have heard of unless they watch the show. And Juicy's also saying that he was set up. So he's really angling for that career back. He'll probably be on TV again in a year because, uh, they, you know, the, the left, while they are, they, they take care of their own. He's got very, very powerful friends in Kamala Harris and Michelle Obama. So these are sort of the first stages of, of getting Juicy back on television. And it's such gaslighting. It's cynical. As if there's a single person in this country who doesn't know what really happened and what was up. Funny in the letter, Linda Sarsour and co. blame uh, the media for pushing the cops' conspiracy against him. I only saw the media blindly <laughs> swallowing Juicy's ridiculous story that five minutes after it happened, most people knew that, that something stunk there. Yeah, well, I, I mean, him uh, you know, seeking justice is a sort of like O.J. looking for the real killers, isn't it? Right, yeah. Which dirty cops uh, <laughs> set him up that really had it up for him? Uh, I, I wonder... Um, just thinking about uh, the culture at large, too, I want you to get way in, way in on these uh, celebrities who weighed in on RBG's uh, passing. And not so much on the passing, but, of course, on the implication, uh, the implication being that, that she should not, that Trump should not uh, nominate somebody to replace her. The Senate shouldn't take it off. This is a great heroine. Uh, I'm talking about uh, some of the great intellects in Hollywood from, from Mariah Carey to Katy Perry to Chris Evans uh, expressing themselves. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in the words of RGB herself, before she passed, the president is elected for four years, not three. So he is still the president doing his duty until, uh, if, if he happens to lose the election, until next January. Um, so this is, uh, is he just stop being president um, because there's an election coming up? Because he's got a few more months left in his term. Um, 
uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that all the actors you mentioned have a deep understanding of the of the Supreme Court and how uh, the how the nomination process works and the roles of the president as, as assigned to the Constitution. Um, of course, they uh, continue to, to they've learned nothing from 2016. You know, Democrats are celebrities lecturing Americans on what they should do and think and, and how policy should go. Uh, it blew up in their face in 2016. It's happening again in 2020. When it comes to deep understanding, uh, I want to play a couple of clips and see if you think that there is a deep understanding, even beginning to permeate urban centers like Chicago or New York, uh, uh, as to the real attitude of leftists towards people with whom they disagree. This uh, a woman in Portland being interviewed, a man on the street bit for a local reporter, uh, asking her about the uh, Trump supporter that was murdered there a couple of weeks ago on the streets of Portland. The uh, uh, alleged killer ultimately killed himself before police apprehended him. I don't think I've heard of another Trump supporter being shot. So the f- what? He got shot. Is he alive? Uh, I believe he died. Oh. Tough luck. Don't be a f- Trump supporter in Portland. Don't be a Trump supporter in Portland or you get murdered. That's it. That's how it goes, Chadwick. Oh, jeez. Well, at least they're honest. I mean... <laughs> Uh, seems to be what's going on. And she, I, I think she said she hadn't even heard of it. Well, um, surprising because, like, I can imagine the kind of media you consume that you wouldn't have heard about that. Right. Right. No, to, to telly. And, of course, the this uh, uh, cri de corps from the left uh, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing became public. Holy f- shit, you guys! I'm driving your car, but I just got a notification that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died! <laughs> Uh, I, that woman hasn't been identified, but I believe it may be Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, Chadwick. I'm not sure. <laughs> these are exactly the sort of people that we will have to say in politics and voting, right? Uh, these these Marxism holy rollers who are so emotionally unhinged um, when an 87-year-old woman who we all knew it was coming, got, God rest her soul, passes away. This is the reaction. Um, I think I saw people also saying, there was someone else who posted something. Furious screaming, you know, all sorts of expletives. Why couldn't she just hold on and still a few more months? Why, 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 why? It's like, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he is Chadwick Moore, columnist for Spectator USA. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Thanks, always a pleasure. the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before he was in North Carolina this weekend, he was in Minnesota. That's President Trump rallying the faithful and uh, delivering, I think, a pretty good one-sentence summation on the uh, choice come November 3rd. I'm your wall. Between the American dream and chaos. Mm. More chaos is sure to ensue with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and President Trump's commitment to advance a nominee this week, a female, he said, in North Carolina. I will be putting forth a nominee next week. It will be a woman. And uh, look, um, this is 
basically the same thing that Barack Obama said in 2016 upon the occasion of the vacancy created by uh, Justice Scalia's passing. Let the American people uh, watch him. Let him answer questions in front of uh, the voters, Republican and Democrat and Independent, and then call a vote. Yeah, agreed. I cede my time to President Obama, and I think President Trump should take some of the remarks President Obama offered in 2016 about the Scalia vacancy, cut and paste them with attribution, and include them in his remarks when he advances the nominee this week. Also, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's own remarks uh, when she said in 2016 uh, as to the same matter, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being president in his last year, the words of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. For more on how this uh, development impacts the November 3rd race's down ballot, meaning control of the House, we're pleased to be joined by Congressman Tom Emmer. He's a National Republican Congressional Committee chairman, and he sits on the House Financial Services Committee as well, representative for Minnesota's 6th Congressional District. Representative Emmer, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. John Nolte, writing over at Breitbart, sort of had this, came to the same conclusion I did, which is um, on the matter of filling the vacancy in Trump and McConnell's decision to go ahead. He writes, um, the news cycle is about to be swamped by this confirmation battle, which puts Trump on offense and Biden on defense. All Biden's going to be able to do is heckle helplessly from the cheap seats while everyone reminds him of all the things he said in the past about it being okay to confirm justices during an election year. So this actually plays to Trump's advantage coming down the stretch here. Do you agree with that, number one? Number two, do you see that translating down ballot to uh, your congressional candidates? So on the first question, yes, I do agree with that. I think it's going to provide a lot of energy, not just offense, but a lot of energy because, uh, of course, our media, our national news media is so consistent that back in 2016 when they were uh, siding with uh, Barack Obama and Ruth Bader Ginsburg about how the president uh, does not stop governing in his last year, and this is exactly what the Constitution provides for, now they will tell us the complete opposite. And they forget the American people are much smarter than they give them credit for. And that's just going to energize this thing even more. As far as translating down ballot, you win elections with great candidates. And we have great candidates all across this country. And Illinois is no exception. I think that's where it starts. This is just going to get those same voters that will be voting Republican uh, on the ballot. I get those same voters even more motivated to go and request a ballot to vote absentee or show up in person and vote for our Republican candidates. I uh, wanted to get your reaction to to Nancy Pelosi over the weekend, suggesting that, uh, you know, they've got all these uh, maneuvers they can deploy, these uh, arrows in their quiver. She wasn't specific about ruling anything in or out. Stephanopoulos pressed her on impeachment and she certainly wouldn't rule it out. But uh, so what is the House Republican going to be res- uh, response going to be? If uh, the Pelosi and the House Democrats come up with some other some new contrived impeachment charge to try to uh, gum up the works in in the House and and really ultimately the Senate. Well, it's only going to help amplify the message that we're already making. I I mean, this is the whole point, Dan. You ran as moderate problem solvers that we're going to work with this president and his administration, that we're going to work with House Republicans uh, and Republicans in the Senate. And you refused to do it from day one. Uh, sadly, uh, it's an awful thing for the country. Uh, she's been she's been uh, a horror show from day one. Uh, but as far as uh, uh, the campaign, Dan, it's going to be very helpful to us. The fact that she still won't rule out impeachment and for what? Uh, it's it really is amazing uh, how tone deaf uh, Nancy Pelosi is to America. I mean, you think of what they've accomplished. Absolutely nothing. They haven't accomplished anything on health care. 
All they've tried to do is undermine this administration from day one, obstruct. I mean, I guess if you look at one accomplishment, they did manage to pass a new rule on the House floor where uh, Nancy only needs 20 of her members present because everybody else can stay home and vote by proxy. Uh, So that's about the only thing they've accomplished. Sure. I mean, they're very committed to uh, vote by mail only. Uh, the uh, maybe maybe one thing that uh, Republicans can do, uh, House Republicans, maybe invite that uh, salon owner, that East salon owner from Nancy Pelosi's district to move to a, a Republican district where her business won't be torn asunder by her representative. Maybe that, just as a as a, you know, an olive branch to uh, to regular Americans out there, even in San Francisco. How sad is that? I, I mean, you're right. Regular Americans. This is what makes them disgusted with their politicians, their elected officials, is when the elected official like Nancy Pelosi has one set of standards for her uh, constituents. Uh, You can't go into the office. You can't work. You can't make a living. You got to wear a mask. You got to do this. You got to do that. And then she has a completely different standard for herself. She doesn't have to follow any of the same rules. Uh, this is what is going to create the uh, the energy, not just uh, the Supreme Court uh, slot. Uh, it is this type of uh, double standard that uh, Americans are just fed up with, regular Americans. And that's why uh, you want safety in the streets, you want peace in the streets, vote Republican. And uh, you uh, are a congressman from Minnesota in addition to the NRCC responsibilities, and Trump was uh, up there rallying over the weekend. Uh, he came surprisingly close in 2016. Do you think Minnesota is really in play in 2020? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, he the Trump campaign invested uh, roughly $50,000 in uh, Minnesota in the 2016 race, and they came within 45,000 votes, roughly, of being the first Republican presidential nominee to win Minnesota since 1972. It's the longest uh, stretch without uh, voting for a Republican nominee in the country. This time, uh, they're making a significant investment, not just in Minnesota, Dan, but in the entire region. It's Minnesota, it's Wisconsin, it's uh, Illinois. They're, they're, believe it or not, Iowa. And, and Illinois gets the benefit, uh, I think, because of the investment in these uh, surrounding states and uh, in Illinois. I don't think anybody's writing any state off. And it's going to benefit our, uh, our House candidates, primarily. He has, and take a look at, uh, take yeah. a look at uh, Esther Joy King in Illinois 17, uh, down by the Iowa right border. Right against Bustos, right. Yes, uh, okay, he is Congressman Tom Emmer, National Republican Congressional Committee Chairman, sits on the House Financial Services Committee. Unfortunately, that includes Sean Caston. And he's a representative from Minnesota 6th. Representative Emmer, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Have a great week. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Is that a 25 caliber Titan in your butt, or are you just happy to see me? No, it's a 25 caliber Titan pistol. Thank you for asking. Uh, this story comes to us. Golden Meadow, Louisiana. Justin Savoy, 24, pled guilty to weapons charges on Friday. After cops found a loaded gun inside his buttocks as they strip searched him in jail last year, this thanks to the smoking gun, we have the wonderful details of this story. Investigators see several other guns from his truck. Not enough room, I guess. In addition to homemade silencers, 
Uh, during the search, cops said Savoy had a 25 caliber Titan pistol concealed in his rear end, quote unquote, from the police report. The firearm, said to have a two and a half inch barrel and be more than four inches long, was loaded. Uh, per his probation, Savoy is barred from owning or possessing firearms. Seems sensible. Has been ordered to refrain from frequenting bars and lounges and the excessive use of alcohol and the illegal use of drugs. Not to mention, uh, yes, the uh, hide and go seek that he does with himself and firearms. Is that thing loaded? It sure is. I've seen, you know, people do like the the index finger and thumb in, in your pocket to feint a gun. But, uh, boy, this is taking concealed carry to a whole new level, isn't it? hi yo. Uh, going from a man with a gun up his arse to a man with his head up his arse. Why white people owning dogs is racist. Yeah, that's right. You know the old saying, uh, a, a, a dog is a Eurasian's best friend, right? The Eurasian people work nonstop to gain and maintain the trust with these gorgeous creatures, but it was all stolen from them. That's the top line at the UnitedWildlifeUnion.com blog that is uh, operated by Cade who uh, bears a striking resemblance to Andy Dick from News Radio. He's the father of two and a lifelong con- conservationist, his bio. When not committing time to the local zoo, Cade spends his time creating and disseminating educational materials for local schools that help kids understand why protecting animals and LGBTQIA plus rights is so important. The father of two. Um, how does he feed his children? Uh, I digress. The symbiotic relationship, this is Cade's writing. A symbiotic relationship between dog and woman, woman, very groundbreaking. As humans had never been this close to an animal before. He's uh, bringing us uh, back 12,500 years and then to present, 12,500 years ago when canines were first becoming domesticated, the relationship that developed between dog and woman. The Eurasian people work nonstop. The greedy actions by white people stain the history books forever. Shortly after the Eurasian people worked so hard to train and bond with wolves, most of them were shipped off and given to Europeans. These filthy white savages took the work and credit from the Eurasian people and branded these magnificent creatures as their own. The need for white people to claim pre-made or pre-discovered things is not isolated to just this instance. Countless times in history, whites have been caught stealing the work and talent of people of color for their own success. But enough about Joe Biden. Well, I guess Neil Clinic wasn't a person of color, but you know. Uh, so uh, white, uh, filthy savages, you better repent and stay tuned for our next installment of UnitedLifeUnion.com and what Cade is up to, how seahorses are breaking gender stereotypes. Thank you for joining us on this uh, opening offering of the Dan Prof Show this week. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.